This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, one and all. Here's to a truly cool Yule. I'd be standing under the mistletoe, except my producer, Harriet, has said, if you do that, you'll be cancelled. Cancelled, man. Just get on with it. So, I'm getting on with it. It's time for the Rosebud Christmas special. Welcome. And, and we've got special music. Oh, yes, this is the season to be jolly. And we've made our signature tune extra specially twinkly for this special occasion. <laughs> Hello again, this is Giles Brandreth, and this is our Christmas special, the last in our Christmas Cracker week of episodes, and I think we've got something perfect lined up for you. We spent a long time thinking about a really Christmassy guest. There's Father Christmas, of course, but he's very busy with work this week. There's Cliff Richard, but he was unfortunately unavailable too, although we are working on booking him at some point in 2024, so listen out for that. And then... We had a brainwave. What is more Christmassy than an archbishop? Christmas, after all, is the date when Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus. The head of the Church of England is the Archbishop of Canterbury. So what we've done is invite my favourite Archbishop of Canterbury to join us. It is the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. Well, welcome to what is a very special edition of Rosebud. It's our Christmas edition. And I wanted to have a very special guest, and I've been lucky enough, or should I say, I've been blessed to have one. It is Rowan Williams. Now, Rowan, you've got a lot of titles. What is your full title, if we gave you everything? What are archbishops? They're very reverent, most reverent, most very reverent. What is that, remind me? Um, they're supposed to be most reverent, but of course, now that I'm no longer archbishop, I, I think I really just have to revert to being right reverent. You're right reverent. <laughs> You're right reverent. The Lord uh, Williams of Oystermouth. Oystermouth. Where is Oystermouth? Oystermouth is on the western end of Swansea. Very good. Well, we're going to talk, of course, about Christmas, but I want to go back to the beginning and ask you, it's always my first question, what is your very, very first memory? Two things competing for that, I think. Probably from about 1953, because, of course, in 1953, there was a rather um, celebrated event nationally um, in Westminster Abbey, 
and there were local celebrations. And I've got a very vague memory of a street party mm. in 1953 in Astrid in the Swansea Valley, where I grew up. And I rather think I was encouraged to sing on that occasion. History doesn't record what the audience thought of it, but I have a firm conviction that that's, that's what happened. And your, your memory, other than that of the coronation? Well, the other memory of around that year is of a, a travelling fair coming to Astrid Gunlice. And, as happened in those days, a little procession around the village of the, um, the acts and personalities of the fair, or, I suppose, small-scale circus, really. And what I remember is the cage in which was the wild man of Borneo. Oh, my! Which was, I, I imagine, somebody in uh, a monkey suit, as we would now say, dressed up as an orangutan. But I, I remember being told that's the wild man of Borneo. Because that was a bit of a phenomenon when I was a child as well, the really? wild man of Borneo. Go. And this was a sort of creature. It was a sort of creature. It was, as I say, something like an orangutan. Well, it, w- it clearly worked, because it you, worked. there you are, Here you know, all these years it. later, yes. 70 yes. or so years later, you remember it. Uh, South Wales, why were you there? Who were your parents? What is your background? My father was an engineer. He'd been in the Air Force in the war, and that had given him his escape route out of the mines, basically. His um, brother had been a miner. One other brother was in the tin plate works in Clidach in the Swansea Valley. And my mother's family were farmers and shopkeepers in the valley. So that was our background. And what sort of people were they? What what kind of man was your father? Extremely quiet, very, very self-contained. He was an extremely competent engineer. I think in, in another generation he would have been in university and he had a very solid career as a, an engineer designing lighting and heating systems for public buildings and occasionally designing floodlighting systems as well. So at home I still have photographs of the floodlighting system he designed for Caffili Castle and Castellcourt in South Wales and he won an award for the Castellcourt lighting. And your mother, what sort of person was she? One of um, five children, I think. Brought up not by her mother, but by an aunt, which was not all that uncommon in slightly overcrowded conditions. There was a childless aunt who was happy to take my mother in, um, just lived down the road, essentially. And she spent a couple of years as a secretary in, I think, the um, South Wales Electricity Board, as it then was. And she was a good person? A sweet person? A a funny person? Motherly? What was was was, her personality? She cared a lot, I think, about... Her appearance. She was rather stylish, um, not much of a reader or anything like that. And I think actually rather a rather solitary person in some ways. She was immensely sociable and all my friends used to love coming to the house because she was endlessly hospitable and would produce mounds of cakes at short notice. But I, I sensed, especially as she, she grew older, that um, sense of loneliness and slight resentment because she'd had polio as a child so she was quite seriously lame and for someone who cared a lot about being elegant that was that was always difficult and I don't think she ever quite came to terms with that. Was she aspirational for the family? She was very much so probably rather more than my father was Mm. Um, and being an only child I had all of that resting very firmly on my shoulders from early on. So was there also a tension between them because of that? How how did their marriage evolve? Were they happy in the long run? Oh, they were happy, I think. I I don't imagine that there was any any kind of upheaval in the marriage at all. But it was very much a marriage of an introvert and an extrovert. Mm. And that, that was visible day after day. 
And I think it didn't help that I was also quite um, quite seriously ill when I was a child. I had meningitis when I was two, and I, I really don't remember much about that. I can remember as a vague blur of childhood experience, long periods in, in bed. What is meningitis in a nutshell? Um, it's an inflammation of the brain, essentially. It can be fatal. Mm. Um, it can bring serious long-term damage. I was fortunate in that sense. The only effect, long-term effect, was um, a complete deafness in my left ear. And for a while, slight sort of weakness on the left side of my body generally. Um, so I do remember as a child being taken once a month or so for checkups at, at a hospital. And that will have been challenging for your mother and father as well, particularly Looking an back, only child, yes. wanting it oh, so much to work yes. out. Looking back, I, I, I think more and more what a burden it must have been, what a challenge it must have been for them, and how much of a drain um, this must have been. They, they were told that I was not to be overexcited and not to be um, cross-framed. I think I must have been an appallingly spoiled brat, actually. But, as I say, the memory is vaguely of recurrent periods of illness and for a few years. And at home, what languages did you speak? Welsh and English? My parents spoke Welsh to each other mm -hmm. and to their own generation. But this was the early 1950s, and on the whole, Welsh was seen as more of a handicap than a help. And I think my, my mother used to say anyway that one reason they didn't try to bring me up in Welsh was that it was another strain. It was another source of, of tension, which I, I could do without. Um, so they spoke Welsh to my grandmother, who lived with us. They spoke Welsh to their siblings quite a bit. And I was always conscious of Welsh flowing around. And as one does, I picked up a certain amount of Welsh that way, particularly when I realised that when people didn't want me to know what they were saying, they spoke Welsh. <laughs> it's the greatest incentive, isn't it? Your first school, did you go to a nursery school? No, I went to a, a little private primary school in Cardiff, actually. We'd moved to Cardiff when I was about five. And um, it was a very, very small operation, um, almost a dame school, you know, run by two formidable old spinsters. And was that a time of happiness for you? Were you, were you a happy little boy on the whole? On the whole, I think so. I think the recurrent illnesses of various sorts, not only sort of fallout from meningitis, but also recurrent problems with asthma and related problems, that, mm, that didn't help. I was quite often ill in bed, I can certainly remember that. But that was also not unmixed because it meant I had time to read. And what really seized me from the age of about four onwards was reading. And what sort of books were you reading then? I fell in love early on with history, oh. but also with mythology. Um, somebody gave me a, I think it was a, a kind of a children's adapted version of the Iliad. And I was absolutely besotted with that. You can sort of see where some of the adult interests have come from, mm. too. <laughs> Were there any times when you were deeply unhappy? Can you remember the first sense of being unhappy? Um, I can remember unhappy times in the house when, I suppose, I was becoming aware of the fact that some of the behaviour which was indulged by my parents was making them and me unhappy. Mm -hmm. you know, tears and tantrums and... And, the like. and, and this I, is because you were spoiled, in a sense. Yes. You, I, you were the golden child and you could get away with anything. I think and so. And you tried to. And being wrapped in cotton wool because of the illnesses. Mm. And 
I think some of the unhappiness I felt in those years had to do with the consciousness of the, the price you pay for all that. Yeah. I remember whenever I come out of Victoria Station, I go back to when I was about seven or eight, and we went as a family to see a film. I forget what the title is, something with two farthings. A boy with two farthings, anyway, a film with mm. two farthings in the title. And next door to it was a film that I wanted to see. And we'd gone to see this film, the Two Farthings film. And I made a scene on Victoria Station. Mm. And I was conceded to. We went to the film I wanted to see and not the Two Farthings mm. film. And to this day, when I go through Victoria Station, I feel bad about that, even though it happened nearly 70 years ago. Isn't that strange? It's very strange, but entirely recognisable to me. I, I feel yeah. that about some of those events in exactly the same way. And there are... Uh, little triggers that occasionally bring back those, those moments of yeah. self-will and frustration. And Lovely. your next school, after the dame school? <laughs> well, we moved house when I was about 11. My father had a new job, and um, that took us to Swansea, nearer where I'd spent my first years in the Swansea Valley. And I went to a secondary school in Swansea, Deneva, um, and had, after a, a rocky start... An absolutely wonderful time there. And why was the start rocky? Because it was somewhere new and it was a large somewhere environment? New, I knew nobody. It was an yeah. enormous and rather graceless building. It was um, right in the middle of Swansea. It had been badly damaged in the war and never properly restored. So all the clocks had stopped at about um, three o'clock in the morning, I think, when the bomb had dropped. <laughs> Nothing had been done about them since. Um, Swansea, as you know, was blitzed mm. very seriously in the war. Um Yes, my, my mother remembers, actually, during that period, you could see the glow in the sky from Swansea, 16 miles north in Astrid Gunlice. Yeah. And my wife was born in Swansea. I love Swansea. It's a wonderful um, place. But, so, at so we, this school, hmm. uh, do you do well? Are you a successful pupil? I mean, why does it become a happy place after having this difficult start? Hmm. Happy because I think I realised there, there were some things I was reasonably good at like English and history and languages, but above all, the mixture of very close friends and excellent teachers. My best friends are still the friends I made when I was 13. Mm. And we still see each other a lot. Lovely. Going back to this childhood and the happiness of it, was Christmas a special time of year when you were a little boy? Very much so. And one very early memory, one Christmas when it had actually snowed, and I remember getting up and looking out of the, the back window, the little sitting room in our house, and looking at the footsteps in the snow going down to the shed at the bottom of the garden, coming back and asking about that and being told, oh, that, that must have been Father Christmas. Oh, I'm thinking, absolutely so. Of course. <laughs> coming to see you was certainly a priority. And were your family a, a traditional Christian family? When it was Christmas, did it mean something to them in terms of hmm. the Christmas story, or was it just the festival? My earliest memories have almost nothing of that religious element to them. I think it was only when we moved to Cardiff, when I was five or so, um, we started going to a local chapel, a Presbyterian chapel, which was very, very active, very welcoming, had a, an excellent and very large Sunday school. And suddenly everything took off from there. That became a big part of all our lives. And I went to Sunday school every week. We usually went to chapel on Sunday mornings. And we had very intelligent and challenging preaching. So yes, that, that put the, um, 
the framework, the Christian framework around all sorts of things. And were you engaged by that at the time? I mean, do you think... Absolutely, This yes. is not just in retrospect because of what you ended up as. No, I, I do remember thinking when I was, I suppose, nine or ten, I think I'd like to be a minister when I grow up. Oh. And I've sometimes said to people, you know, forget the solemnity and ritual of... Anglo-Catholicism, the real solemnity and ritual is a good Presbyterian church where the minister in his gown and hood sweeps up to the pulpit. Nothing quite as dramatic as that in anything else. And was it the theatricality of it? Well, the preaching? What was it that <laughs> enticed you then? I'm sure the theatricality played its part. But I think it was also that I was, from again from early on, very much absorbed by the biblical story. I, I loved to read books of Bible stories. It sounds appallingly pious, but I just found them compelling. Well, they're good stories, aren't they're they? good stories. They're good stories. And they're moving stories. And I think a story that engages both your emotions and your aspirations is bound to, to sink in. What's the first of those stories that you think caught your imagination? A children's version with pictures to be coloured of the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 10. And what, what happens in that story? Remind us. That's when um, somebody brings to Jesus a man who has been born blind. And the question is raised, is this man blind because of his own sins or, or because of his family's sins? And Jesus says, well, neither. And he's blind so that there can be a demonstration of the glory of God. And so he makes uh, clay, puts it on the blind man's eyes, sends him off to wash the clay in the pool of Siloam. And he comes back with his sight restored. It's it's a wonderfully dramatic story, not least because it goes on um, to describe the reaction of the religious authorities and the reaction of his own family. And there's a, a long and spirited controversy that unfolds from that. So it's, um, it's a very powerful story. And what did you learn from it as a boy? What Why did it... I mean, I can see the drama of it, mm. but is there is there a thread from it that... Mm. It's a good question. And I suppose if there is a thread, it's probably something to do with that that image of vision. That this is about Jesus restoring vision. And I wouldn't have, of course, I wouldn't have framed it like that when I was eight. But looking back, I think it remains for me one of the, one of the most powerful stories in, in the scriptural record. I think partly because it, it has in it that remarkable saying of Jesus that... Um, the problem isn't people who can't see, it's people who won't see. Good line. <laughs> so this child is, is clever. Do you realise quite quickly that you're clever, that you're doing well at school? Doing reasonably well at school, yes. Again, I think I must have been a bit of a nuisance to some teachers asking precocious questions and showing off, as children do. Do you have a favourite teacher you remember? In secondary school, a number of teachers I really, really loved listening to. A very, um, very kind-hearted, not terribly competent, but utterly lovely man called Emlyn Evans, who taught British history. Short and stout and endlessly benign and hopelessly incompetent to keep in order. <laughs> <laughs> what were your hobbies at that stage? Not a great deal beyond what became a very consuming thing from about the age of 12 on, which was music, singing especially. Mm during the church choir, um, and drama in school as well. Do you have a favourite hymn? Oh, now then. I mean, when I'm 
When I walk along the road, I often find myself in an involuntary way going, Dear Lord and Father oh, yes. of mankind, yes. forgive us. And that just comes to me mm. unbidden mm. from my mm. childhood. Is there one that comes mm. unbidden well, to you? Well, there are so many, because if you're singing two services a week in church, yeah. you, you have a great um, kind of flood of things coming. And we used to use, initially in church, the old unreformed 1903, is it, English hymnal, which has a collection of really out-of-the-way hymns. And our choir master was very adventurous and used to get us doing bits of plain song and rather unusual hymn tunes. So I remember things like um, Eternal Monarch, King Most High. It's a, it's a tune for the Ascension season. Eternal monarch, king most high, whose blood hath brought redemption nigh. A rather unusual mm. modal tune, and I really fell for that. And certainly by the time I was about 15, 16, um, some of us used to go on Saturday evenings to the Baptist chapel in the centre of Swansea, where they'd have a, a sort of revivalist service, because you could really sing your heart out on those events. Is this where you first met girls? Well, precisely. That was one of the attractions of the Baptist Chapel in town. Um, that substantial cohort from the girls' grammar school up the road. And can you remember your first crush or your first girlfriend? Oh, I can remember a, a girl in the choir in Swansea when I was about probably 13 or so. We used to spend quite a bit of time together in a companionable way. Um, and I think in the sixth form... It was some. Some of us had regular girlfriends. Some of us didn't. It was generally a big group of people going around together, with occasional little flickers of feeling. Was very. What, um, what did you have to offer? I mean, I, I say that because I know all I tried to offer was to be amusing. What mm. did What did you have to offer? Oh goodness, um, that's a very interesting question. Oh dear, I suppose looking back, like some of us, I thought I had to offer intellectual sophistication or something awful like that. God forgive me. No. I think being intelligent company is what any <laughs> right-minded girl should be after. Well, you you may well say no, that. No, I think <laughs> if you could combine the pair of us, we'd have been irresistible. Yes, My humour well, and your yeah. intellectual quality, <laughs> we'd have scored all over Swansea. All over Swansea. <laughs> but again, um, good friendships from those days and friendships that are still alive and well. Mm. Um, so... Yes, there are three, four of those young ladies from the girls' grammar school that I, I still am in touch with. Lovely. And um, we've kept in touch all through um, marriages and children and all over the years. Hello, it's Giles here. And I'm very happy to tell you that this series of Rosebud is sponsored by one of my favourite hotels in the world, the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. One thing for which the Grosvenor House Hotel is justifiably famous is its great room. This has hosted royal banquets, boxing matches, BAFTA award dinners, and was even the location for a Dua Lipa video featuring live horses. But during the Second World War, the great room was transformed. It was requisitioned by the War Office as a mess hall for U.S. Army officers. New American kitchens were installed, and 450 staff served up to 14,000 meals a day. The room is so big that there were over 1,000 officers at each sitting. In total, 
Five and a half million meals were served between 1943 and 1945. The Great Room is a piece of history and well worth a visit when you come to the Grosvenor House Hotel, which I hope you will, because every single person who walks through the door at this hotel is treated as if they were royalty, or even as if they were an American president, and American presidents have stayed here. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. When did, for you, faith take hold? I mean, it was mm. part and parcel of family mm. life because of going, mm. first of all, to the Presbyterian Chapel mm. and then to the Church of England. But you were doing that because that's what the family did and you enjoyed the singing mm. and the preaching you admired. Mm. Yes. When did you actually think mm. there's something more to this? Mm. And when you say, I believe, mm. you actually meant, I believe. Yes. I'd probably put it around the time I was 14 or so. Um, mixture of things. I was, I think, by then fairly convinced that I ought to be exploring being a, a priest when I grew up. And that has a lot to do with the clergy in the parish where we were in Swansea. A vicar who was, I've often said it of him, just one of the most important people in my life, just setting a standard of pastoral generosity, intellectual and spiritual integrity, and everything you could possibly want. I mean, the perfect person to have alongside when you're a teenager and a, a sort of um, awkward question-asking teenager. Endlessly patient. And I've never forgotten that at his funeral, which I had the privilege of taking many years later, somebody who'd been in the choir with me said to me afterwards, you know, I hope that our children have somebody who is for them what Eddie was for us as teenagers. Mm. So he was more than a role model. He was a very special person. He was a real father in God, I think mm. I'd say. And to see him taking a service was to know that he wasn't talking to the empty air, let's say. There was a particular kind of concentration, a physical, hmm, I was going to say grace, which gives a slightly misleading impression. He was a very short, stocky, um, unimpressive looking man. And at the altar transformed. You knew that he was praying with every fibre of his, his body. So from the age of 14, was this becoming central to your life, really? Very much so, yes. I, I was going very regularly to church, occasionally even on weekday mornings, mm. um, trying to understand it a bit better, um, asking lots of questions. You and were again, confirmed by then. Confirmed, and who were you confirmed by? Um, Bishop John Thomas of Swansea and Brecon. And I was confirmed by the Bishop of Dover, and I was so disappointed I didn't get, because I thought this is, we're so near Canterbury. Oh. I mean, why haven't I got the Archbishop of Canterbury? Absolutely, Who is yes. this Bishop of Dover? Anyway, <laughs> that, that's why I asked that, because yep, it, 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 mm. it rings in my head. So, yes, go mm. on. And I, th I think we were also fortunate in having a couple of young curates at the time who were very willing, again, to, to discuss and to open things up. And one of them went off to a mission post in the Caribbean, and was getting rid of some of his books before he went. And I remember him coming to me with a pile of books saying, would you like, like some of these? And they included things like St. Teresa's autobiography. And that certainly helped quite a bit. And also around that time, around the time I was 14, that was when 
my interest in Eastern Christianity began. One of these curates said, there's a Russian Orthodox priest coming to Swansea in a couple of weeks' time, and he's going to celebrate the Orthodox liturgy in St. Mary's in Swansea. Would you like to come along? So I went, and once again, as with some of the experience in the parish church, the sense of a reality emerging in worship, somebody caught up completely in this mysterious activity, a sense of being, I think I could only say, accountable to something immeasurably greater and more wonderful and beautiful that stuck. Did this make you different from the other children? Did other children understand this? Were you a bit of a loner because of it? A little bit of a loner, I think. Um, but fortunately, my, my closest friend, still my closest friend today, um, shared a lot of these interests. And so we always had things to talk about. And um, he retired a few years ago after nearly 30 years as a parish priest in, in the Swansea area. But yes, we, we, we too, I think, spent a lot of time together, but we also mixed with, with others. And um, my memory mainly of mid, mid to late teens is of an extraordinarily companionable and social era when we all seemed to be bundling around together a lot of the time in discussion groups and choirs and drama groups. And What did you do in the drama? Did you, were you an actor? I was an actor, yes. What, what's your, what was your favourite part from those days? Well, I think that my star role in the lower sixth was when um, school decided to put on Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Oh, yes. Which is a great school play, really. True, we did it at my school. Great play. And I played the stage manager. It's a key role, isn't it? Well, he's, he's on stage a lot of the time, yes. commentating on all the action, mm. so quite a lot to remember. And I had to try and um, craft an American accent the purpose, which I think must have been, in retrospect, a bit of a disaster, but um, I really enjoyed that. Did this make you different from your parents, this, the fact that you were clever, that you were in the school plays, that you had this very, this faith that was clearly mm. pulling you in a direction, and they were not really doing that? Did that, not alienate you, but it mean you, you it, were... It meant there was, a, there was a distance, um, and I think, I think they were anxious about my future, that I was... I was making things a bit too complicated instead of aiming to be a lawyer or a doctor or something sensible mm. like that. I mean, do you feel... I, I mean, I feel a bit of guilt about my parents, mm. thinking that maybe I should have been kinder then, oh. more understanding of the sacrifices they yeah. made. I, I wonder, do we all feel that guilt about our parents? I think certainly those of us who've travelled a certain distance from home are almost bound to, I certainly do, and particularly with my mother who, as I say, I think was getting lonelier and sadder as the years went on. You took A-levels? I took A-levels. You did rather well? Reasonably well. Yeah. Um, and yes, I had uh, a scholarship to Cambridge. Well, that's pretty good going. The first member of your family to go to... A, first uh, generation to be in university, yeah. yes. yes. And was that the big change, moving away from South Wales to Cambridge? To Cambridge. Funnily enough, Cambridge itself as a place wasn't quite as, mm. as strange as you might expect, because... An uncle of mine lived there for a few years and had a business there. He, he ran a, um, a mineral water company. Ooh. He made fizzy drinks. Barker and Wadsworth Limited. Good name. Willis Road, Cambridge. Yes. <laughs> and in good old-fashioned style, he had a house at the end of Willis Road and the factory was next door. Oh, he'd done well for himself. He'd done quite well for himself. And was he your mother's My brother? My mother's youngest brother. Yeah, I can see. And, um, So 
so we used to go and have holidays in Cambridge from time to time yeah. and you know, wandering around Cambridge when I was 14, 15 and thinking, mm, I wonder. And what, what college were you? I went to Christ's eventually. And amazing. And did you think when you arrived there, well, one day I may be the master of one of these colleges? That didn't no. really cross my mind, I have to say. But um, And what did you go to read? Theology. Yeah. I actually took the scholarship examination in English because I wasn't doing religious studies at A-level because I found religious studies at the school unbelievably boring. Oh. Um, I thought it would be interesting, but an endless diet of the missionary journeys of St. Paul and the minor prophets wasn't terribly inspiring at O-level. So Has it changed since? Have you managed to, in your bit. more senior capacity, mm. reform it? I wish. Uh. I, th- I think there's still... It, it's not that kind of boring. I think it's another kind of boring now, <laughs> which is uh, simply chronicling the, uh, the festivals of different faiths across the world. But no, I found the real inspiration was English. Um, so I ended up doing English history and Latin at A-level. And I think English because, oddly enough... When I was getting ready for O-level and we were studying 20th century poets, I can, st- I can still recall this very vividly. Our English teacher, rather ambitiously, told us to write an essay on love and death in Thomas Hardy. Wow. And I can recall going back to, to the house and sitting in the little back room where I did my homework and sort of sweating over this until suddenly there's a real moment of illumination and I thought, I, I know what I'm thinking about here in terms of Hardy. He's, he's talking about um, how meaning survives in the face of death, and he's talking about how you cope with our mortality. And he's talking about the value of things that vanish and that they're still lovable. And suddenly, it was as if all kinds of ideas rushed together in a sort of tight knot of understanding. And I remember sitting and scribbling away furiously and thinking... This is it. You know, it's, this is how you understand things. It's wrestling with, with the work of the imagination. It's very satisfying, isn't it? Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, did, were you writing poetry by then? Because that's a thing yes, that often I, begins in teenage years, isn't it? It's very much what you do as a teenager, I think. And I, I wrote some truly awful poems as were teenagers they spiritual do. ones rather than love so, poems? So yes, they tended to be. And of course, growing up in Swansea, you always had Dylan Thomas Dee-dee. looking over your shoulder. And well, you might as well give up before you start. Quite. But <laughs> the result is you end up doing yards of imitation Dylan Thomas, which is so embarrassing to recall. There are still some um, early pieces in Surviving School magazines, which I, I would love to be able to buy up and destroy. <laughs> <laughs> so you arrive at Cambridge. You don't feel overawed by the buildings because you know the city quite well. And is that the, the formative experience of your life, your years at Cambridge? Well, certainly one of them. Um, overawed a bit by the classic feeling, I think, of somebody coming up to Cambridge from that sort of background, which is you're no longer a big fish in a small pool. And there are lots of people around who are really are at least as clever as you and plenty who are cleverer. And again, one of those little vignette moments, sitting in the library, the uh, theology library at Cambridge and watching one of my contemporaries across the table from me, um, doing the Hebrew exercise that we had for that week and doing it with a kind of expedition and confidence that I was conspicuously not exhibiting and thinking, damn, he knows what he's up to. Latin, Hebrew, Welsh, English, and what are the other languages that in time you came to master? 
I had to learn Greek, of course, as a, as a theology student. And I made a few tentative steps in Russian in the sixth form. And why was that? Because I'd, I'd already become fascinated by the, the Russian ethos, the, the literature, the music, the culture, the history even, and so wanted to find out a bit more about it. I didn't pursue it very much as a sixth former, but then picked it up, of course, a bit later. And then, um, although I didn't do French for A-level, I, I went on using my French a bit. And, um, so you've read Dostoevsky in the original? Well, this is, I think it's something on Wikipedia that says that. I've never read Dostoevsky end-to-end in the original, but it certainly came in handy to have some Russian to check translations to look at how the, the style works in Russian. So you are a close reader. You, I you, guess so, you examine, yes. You, yes. you take sentences and take them apart and worry things through. I think it may have something to do with um, being some sort of a writer as well, that you you want to get inside and see how things work because you, you want to understand better what's going on when you yourself... Did you feel to, different at Cambridge from the other young men and women around you? Not that different. Um, again, I suppose the sense of um, the insistence of vocation and what that's going to mean. And I was thinking at that time, well, maybe if I'm going to be serious about this, I ought to be a monk or something mm. like that. Maybe I ought to become a Roman Catholic and you know, do the thing properly. Um, and that hung around for quite a few years. You'd have made a good monk. You, you look a bit monk-like, don't you? <laughs> I think there's probably a bit more to it than looking the part. This, is, this was my problem. This is why I didn't get very far, because some of my journey has been similar to some of your journey, mm. but where you were getting properly in touch, I was simply enjoying the theatricality of it all. Uh, and I'm sure as the when you later come to be somebody who is uh, teaching people who are looking to go into the ministry, having to work out who has a true vocation Absolutely. and who may be, as I would have been, in love with their own voice, mm. feeling I uh, maybe have good communication skills, I mm. could do something here. It's quite difficult, isn't it? What, I mean, what does a priest need? What, what are the qualities you look for in a, in a budding mm. priest? Mm. I look for consistency, fidelity, I think. Um, a sense of sticking with it in dark times and not-so-dark times, for some capacity for a deep empathy, not, not being too willing to write people off. I think I also look for um, the kind of joy in faith, not happiness or bubbliness or extroversion, but just joy, sort of steady feeling at home, which takes away the anxiety of having to make an impression or having to be on top of things. I'd like to see in somebody moving into the ordained ministry a level of freedom from that sort of anxiety to make an impression, anxiety to succeed, even the anxiety to be liked, which is so deep in most of us and very deep in people who go into ordained ministry and very deep in me, but it, you know, it's got to get beyond that. And did you, when did you wrestle with those, those big problems that people wrestle with now? of having the idea of a benign God mm. uh, in a world that is so full of darkness and horror. Mm. How can this happen? I mean, w when did you first oh. struggle with that, or didn't you? Oh, it, it was certainly part of my mental landscape in my late teens. Um, we did King Lear for A-level, which certainly rammed at home, and I think it's that which drew me so much when I first went up to Cambridge. 
to that extraordinary figure, Donald MacKinnon, who was then Professor of the Philosophy of Religion at Cambridge. Wildly eccentric personality. We all imitated him like anything. He had this deep, muffled, um, slow voice and all sorts of odd mannerisms. His lectures were almost completely incomprehensible. But you had the sense that something very important was going on. And he would lecture every year on the problem of evil and just ram home how very difficult it was and how important it was not to have illusions about it and not to look for glib conceptual solutions. And I think Donald had as much influence on me intellectually as anybody I've ever known. Yes, you're obviously somebody who likes, who sees the knots that there are in life and wants to unravel them, wrestle with them. Mm. Whereas most people will put them to one side and just move on. But you never wanted to do that. You wanted to confront these things. Ultimately, I think it is a question of of honesty. And I, I was always aware that if you block something out, you're deliberately settling for a world that's smaller than the real one. And I think one of the things I actually learned from my parish priest in my teens was the thing about faith is that it enlarges rather than shrinks the world. So if you set about to to narrow things down, to say, well, faith can't cope with that, so let's just park it quietly, then you're really not doing much justice to, the, to what faith is. So after your th- three years as an undergraduate, three years you got undergrad. a good degree? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well done, you. You're brilliant. And then you go straight into the ministry, do you? No, no, I oh. went off to do doctoral research then. And when did you meet Jane? Was it at this time? Um, no, rather later. Um, it was when Jane was a PhD student in Cambridge and I was a young lecturer in about 79-80. And was it love at first sight? Um, I think it developed across across a crowded seminar room, basically. We went to the same graduate seminars and that's you know, that's when it really began. And, and was it an intellectual thing? Mm-hmm. Well, I th- we've often said to each other the main thing was catching one another's eye at something funny and finding that we both found the same things amusing. That's a good way. It's a very good way. (laughs) Very good. Mm. And you had children? Two children, yes. And can you remember the birth of the first one? Oh, my word, yes. It was was quite a protracted business. Um, We've often said since that our daughter's reluctance to get up in the morning was foreshadowed in uh, (laughs) in her birth. She most definitely did not want to get out of bed, so to speak. And um, I I was there through... Hours and hours and hours of that. but um, A very long labour. A very long labour. But rewarding in the end. Oh, I would, yes. Yeah. yes. So when did you actually become a priest? Um, when I was 27, I think. Um, after finishing my doctorate, I was offered a position teaching at the Theological College in Murfield in Yorkshire. That's a college which is run by a monastic community, the community of the resurrection. I had two very important, hard-working, not particularly easy years there, and that helped clarify that, no, I wasn't going to offer myself for the monastic life. I would carry on with preparation for the priesthood. You wanted to be in the world? Well, I think so, and also the feeling that something about theological research and theological thinking was was going to be important for me, and maybe it wasn't the cloister for that. What was the most 
significant learning experience of your time as a priest? The the an anecdote of that experience. Hmm. A, a moment when you thought, yes, I'm learning something here. This is I'm doing something worthwhile. Or hmm. I used to go to morning prayer every day by much the same route from my house, walking across the the council estate where I lived in the curate's house. And fairly frequently used to pass the time of day with somebody in the front garden or starting a car or something in the morning or later in the day. And nothing very much came of this. It was just one of those things. On the way to church, you say hello to to these people. Then one day this person stopped me and said, "Um, I think you ought to go and visit so-and-so in a neighbouring street because she's just lost her husband and she's in a bit of a state. And I remember thinking, that's why it's worth walking across the parish every day and passing the time of day with somebody because you never know when a significant door will open. So I was able to go and spend a bit of time with this bereaved woman. And that, yes, that taught me something about the importance of just just being visible, just being around in the parochial setting. And clearly you were a clever person. You've been an academic and you found you were actually doing something worthwhile as a parish priest. Did you feel when you became a bishop and then later an archbishop that you were getting further and further away from actually what Mm. ministry is about? Certainly when I was Archbishop of Canterbury, that, that was around. But actually, when I was Bishop of Monmouth in South Wales in the 90s, I didn't feel that. It was a a smallish diocese. It was possible to to visit every parish in it once a year. I was in a different parish every Sunday. But it did mean that over nearly 11 years, I got to know people fairly well in those contexts. And is becoming a bishop like becoming a spy? Does someone come and tap you on the shoulder and say, have you thought about it? How were you singled out for this kind of promotion? Oh, goodness knows. How does it work? Um, Well, in my case, what happened was the then Archbishop of Wales took me on one side and said, um, no pressure, but uh, what would you say if we put your name forward? And in Wales, of course, it's an elective system, not a state appointment. And I said, well, uh, let's see what happens, shall we? But were you excited? I was a bit. I, I was teaching in Oxford at the time and loving that, but also the thought of going back to Wales was immensely attractive. And... I can recall a conversation with with Jane about this and saying, well, in a smallish church like that, you can probably make a bit more difference as a bishop than you might in, in other settings. And um, the next thing was a call from the Archbishop of Wales saying the Electoral College has, has decided. Well done you. And you obviously did it well because you then rose yet higher. Well, it was certainly the happiest time of my master, I think, as Bishop of Monmouth. Wonderful. Wonderful colleagues. Um, A succession of brilliant archdeacons. um, And just, I suppose, the sense of... Sentimental as it sounds, real love for the parishes. Um, And when I became Archbishop of Canterbury, once or twice I was invited back to Wales to uh, visit one or other of the parishes that I'd been in been involved with and I think Ebervale was one of them going to do something in Ebervale 
I came back and said to Jane, well, I think I've had my, my quota of hugs for the next six months now. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a nightmare being Archbishop of Canterbury? Yes, in yeah. a word. Um, yes, I think my successor would say much the same. Um, yes, you're, you're always on show. You're always out there to be interpreted, um, to be part of somebody's story. Um, you're always being told by competing voices to become an echo chamber for their positions. And I've often said when people say what we want from you is leadership, what they mean is what we want from you is for you to say what we say only louder. (laughs) And so maintaining any kind of balance or perspective, even it feels something, even integrity in that is, is just hard work. Remember when I was a member of Parliament, I used to say I only met two types of people, people with problems and people who are right. Mm, Absolutely. Everyone else has all the answers. So was it an unhappy period for you? Do you think you contributed anything worthwhile? I don't know. It wasn't a particularly happy period um, because we were in the middle of such a round of controversy, especially about same-sex relationships that dogged almost everything for years. Was it worth doing? Well, someone has to do it. Someone has to do it. And you did it very well. I think the the things which, to me, made it most worthwhile were visiting individual dioceses in England. I could go and spend maybe three days in a diocese. Not very much, but it would be a way for me of finding out what was actually going on on the ground, never mind what's being said in the papers and for the diocese to feel connected with the wider picture. And to have three days, let's say, visiting a couple of schools, visiting a prison, doing a study event for the clergy, and just sitting up late at night with the bishop and listening to what the problems were on the ground as, as they were experiencing. And that. were you? did you enjoy the big state occasions? You did the blessing for the now king and Queen I Camilla. Did, yes. And obviously you did many services attended by the mm. late Queen. Mm. Was that fun? Because did you enjoy, did you like the late Queen's company? Oh, enormously. I, I suppose I'd never been a, a passionate royalist of any kind, but never a passionate Republican either. But I did find a, a deep personal affection and um, affiliation. I suppose for people of my generation, she was always going to be a bit like your mum. Mm. And I, I experienced a bit of that benign matriarchy. With and her. her faith was so her central was to her life. Was central. And I admired that. I admired her clarity about that. And I also learned to appreciate very deeply her, her humour and her lack of pomposity and the way in which she would puncture pretensions. She was very funny. And also, as you say, she didn't hide anything under a bushel. Those Christmas Day broadcasts, mm. every single one of them, because mm. I actually read them all mm. when I was writing a biography on her, mm. every single one of them, half of it, is actually a old-fashioned, simple Christian yes. message. That's right. That's uh, right. Which was rather good. Mm. Um, and the king, and the, was that was that difficult, the blessing? No, it wasn't difficult, because it was everyone was comfortable about it, the blessing of the yes, king. Yes, I think we, we got to where we needed to get to, which was... Uh, think a simple matter of what we would do in any comparable instance yeah. which was to offer what we could offer and acknowledge what had to be acknowledged yeah. what does Christmas mean for you now you are you a grandfather yes oh very proudly so how many grandchildren have you got only the one well one's enough one's enough little boy 
And as your parents said of you, well, one is enough, possibly more than enough. So, absolutely. Uh, so what does Christmas mean nowadays? How will you be spending Christmas this year? Because the house we live in now is, is rather on the small side, we can't get everybody in, so we've decided we'll, we'll take somewhere else for a few days mm. around Christmas and get everybody in. In Wales? In, um, no, no, somewhere else. I'll keep it secret. <laughs> no, no, we, we won't be hounding you. We're not, um, we're not rosebud stalkers, don't worry. Yeah, absolutely. But a, a family gathering. A family gathering. But um, what Christmas means, I suppose, I always feel every year the same spark of excitement at the beginning of Advent, that we're taken back to a point where there's everything to hope for, there's everything to look forward to. And the... Uh, can I stop you there? You were saying this. In the world that we are now in... Uh, if you turn on the television, yes. read the newspapers, whether it's Ukraine, yes. the Middle East, yes. Africa, even problems in South America, yes. it's a world full of death, destruction, yes. Yes. innocent lives being yes. lost, a time of hope and renewal. Unpack that for us a bit. I think that's why I say everything to look forward to. The world we know is wretchedly imprisoned in its own warring egotisms in its own competing greed and violence and and in a way that just intensifies the sense that there must be something that that can be looked forward to that can be hoped for that is greater than this that is that is fraught with the possibility of healing and the story we tell at christmas the story which i believe and millions believe is is a true story is that there is a moment in the history of this world which opened up fully to the depths of God and depths of reality. And through that crack, if you like, light pours in. And every year we remind ourselves that is part of the history of the world, the history of this world which is so full of bitterness and savagery. It's also a world in which there is that, that crack. I know it's a cliche, the crack where the light gets in, but... Quite seriously, this is a moment where, in the midst of our history, something opens up through which a wholly different perspective is possible, and nothing can shut that up again. And you never have doubts? Not now? Well, I never have doubts in the sense that I, I sit up for hours thinking, oh, is this really true or not? <laughs> I have plenty of moments where I think, I don't see how this hangs together. I don't see how it's going to cash out. But... Coming back, as one does at Christmas, to this sense that the creator of the world has affirmed that the world can be healed. We have been told that the world can be healed. And that's faith. And faith is not um, a manifesto, not a program, not a script, but it is a confidence that we are in the hands of an agency, a reality, utterly beyond what we can comprehend, whose resources never come to an end. And so we get up the following morning, we do what we can, we pray, we act, we hope, we even rejoice from time to time. Does your grandchild have a Christmas stocking? The presents? Do we like all, do we like all that? Do, we'll you, do you disapprove of some of the manifestations of, of Christmas now that seem to, have, <laughs> seem to have forgotten what even the word Christmas is about? I mean, does that worry you at all, or, or that's just the way the world is? It's the way the world is. Um, I, I do feel that moving directly from Halloween to Christmas as now seems to be <laughs> the, 
the custom. Whatever happened to Guy Fawkes night? Yeah. But moving directly from this, yes, it's it's as if from you know October to January, we're just in one continuous consumer frenzy. Yes, all right, that's that's tiresome. That's a bit cheapening. And yet, when it comes to it, people will still look for, feel for something else. And I don't, I don't want to write it all off. Somewhere in the middle of all this, the truth gets through. One of the reasons that we love having you as our special Christmas guest, of course, is you do look quite Christmassy. Um, <laughs> your appearance, which is interesting, some of the times when you were having a rough time as Archbishop of Canterbury, I remember cartoons of you that Ooh, yes. sort of took advantage <laughs> of your, your beard and flowing <laughs> locks. Just a but then when people are loving you, uh, they, <laughs> they forget this uh, Welsh druid and you suddenly become sort of like Moses Reborn. Or Dumbledore. As, uh, or Dumbledore. As, as, as has been are you said, sometimes mistaken in the street and people come up and ask for autographs saying, is it Dumbledore? I, I've never been uh, charged with being Dumbledore. I have, I have had a slightly related experience, which... Um, goes back a few years when I was on a, a train going back to Cambridge uh, quite late at night and the sort of company that you find on some trains late at night um, and a rather drunken man on, in the same carriage who was being extremely obnoxious to a young woman sitting in a nearby seat and I thought, oh, I really got to say something. So I went up to him and said, look, she really doesn't want to talk to you. Will you just back off? And he looked at me blearily said, cool it, Santa. <laughs> so I took some satisfaction. <laughs> Do you have a favourite Christmas carol? Because we might end with a Christmas carol. If it's one chosen by you, we can get some nice people from Cambridge, of course, mm. to sing it for us. Do you have a favourite one? Two favourites, if I may. One is um, the Pretorius, is this done horse and Schwungen, the great German carol, A Spotless Rose is Blowing. And the other is in Dulce Jubilo. Oh. Again, I learned that um, in the familiar Pearsall setting, isn't it? Um, which lots of choirs sing, and that as a teenager, and it still, to me, speaks of the heart of it all. Merry Christmas and a very happy and hopeful New Year. And the same to you, Giles. Thank you so much.